we're going to be reading, it starts, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus. And we know quite a lot about Peter. He was one of the first followers of Jesus. He was the first to recognise who Jesus was. He was the one that said, you are the Christ. But then he immediately misunderstood what that meant and earned that rebuke from Jesus that said, get behind me, Satan. So we know that Peter has some highs and he has some lows. He's also the one that said just at the end of Jesus' life that he, Peter, would be better than anyone else at following Jesus. He says that even if everybody else falls away, he never would. But Jesus says to him that before the day is done, he would fall away too. And when Peter hears the rooster crow, he knows that he's denied Jesus three times. But then he was also amongst the first to see Jesus' empty tomb. And he was the, one of the first to see Jesus resurrected. And for Peter, that changed everything. He went from being a frightened, fragile fisherman to standing in front of a big crowd, a massive crowd, a hostile crowd. And he proclaimed that the man you killed, Jesus, God has made him the Lord of the universe and raised him to life. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Peter declared to that crowd that they needed to repent and turn to Jesus because only in him is their forgiveness. And God used that preaching that day to bring an extraordinary number of people to him. And Peter was, along with the other apostles, so gripped by what he'd seen because he'd seen his friend killed and then three days later brought back to life, alive again, not resuscitated, but resurrected, never to die again. Peter had seen that. And with the other apostles, they were so gripped by it that they went and they preached it and they preached it all around the ancient world. Their lives were disrupted and they suffered, so much so that ultimately Peter was killed by the order of the Emperor Nero in around about AD 64, just because he was a follower of the Lord Jesus. He died for his convictions about the things that he'd seen. So that's the person who's writing to us, Jesus' disciple. And he's writing to God's elect, who he calls exiles, or in some translations, aliens or foreigners, who are scattered around some provinces that are now in what's modern-day Turkey. Peter probably wrote from Rome, although we don't know that for sure. And he's not writing to a specific church, like Paul often was, to talk about a specific issue. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to us. And Peter calls them and us God's elect, which is a term straight out of the Old Testament. Israel, the Jews, were God's elect. And now Peter, a Jew, is using the same term to refer to Christians. So in a very quick way, he's connecting the church, Christians, to the whole history of God's salvation from creation to new creation. And there's a lot in this letter. There's a lot just in that chapter that Kathy read for us. And we could go for several hours, but it's the end of a really hot day and it's summer, so we might just do the second half. Uh, if it helps, you might want to have a Bible open at 1 Peter. Um, we're going to start from around verse 13 and follow on from there and I might make you look up some other verses as well. Now if you've got one of the church Bibles you see that it's got a heading in the NIV it says be holy 
which isn't part of the original text, but it's put there by the translators to try and help us understand what's coming next. And that's exactly what Peter is talking about in the verses that follow, but if we're not surely sure what be holy means, we could use a different heading, we could call it live differently. Or if you prefer a question, how do we live new life? And that's what we'll work through today. Peter's message through the whole letter is encouragement to Christians to live differently. Because the world's going to tell us to go one way, but we need to stand firm and push against it. It seems that being a Christian and Christian ideas are increasingly being pushed to the fringes in our society. Being a Christian now is seen as outmoded, outdated, old-fashioned or even irrelevant. Peter's message in the face of this is to stand firm, to push against the world, live differently from the people that are in the world. And the reason we're called to live differently is because we are different. A Christian is someone who God has come to and made different. We're now an alien in the world, a foreigner. So if you're a Christian, you're already different. So we have to live differently. And we can see this, we pick it up at verse 13. Peter begins with, therefore, and he goes on with sober minds and and being alert, but because there's a therefore there, we need to look back at what's come just before it. And like that reading we had from Exodus and the people at Sinai, God has just saved his people and brought them to Sinai and Peter does the same thing. He's just gone through the salvation that Jesus brought to all of us. And Peter describes this new salvation as new birth into a living hope. And then later in verse 23, we see Peter says, a Christian is someone who's been born again, but born again by the living, enduring word of God. The word, the gospel, the good news about Jesus isn't just an intellectual fact to consider, although it is a fact. But it's more than that, it's a living and enduring word that, when it's accepted, brings new life. The Christian gets born all over again into a whole new person. You're redeemed, you're saved, and because you're remade, there's a whole new life to live. And new life, hopefully, is what we're all about here. But to get that new life, our job is simply to believe. Or as Peter puts it in verse 22, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth. And obeying the truth simply means to believe in God. To obey the truth is to hear the truth, the good news about Jesus, and to say yes to it and believe in it. And by doing that, we purify ourselves. We have our sins washed away. And there is a little more to it. There's a powerful God who takes us for himself. And there's a description of this right at the beginning in verse 2. We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God chooses us. Then we're sanctified by the Spirit, which means we're set aside. We're being made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit as God's Spirit lives in us and changes us from the inside out. And we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And if that last part sounds a little strange, to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus simply is shorthand for the act of Jesus willingly dying on the cross and shedding his blood to wash away our sins so that we're forgiven and able to approach a holy God. 
So the Father chooses us, the Spirit makes us holy, the Son forgives our sins. God comes to us and does that work in us. And we're different. And Peter wants to make sure we know this by the way he addresses the Christians in this letter. He calls us Christians aliens, exiles, foreigners, because we're that different. We no longer belong in the world. Peter wants us to know that this world is not our home. And Paul talks about this too in his letters. In Philippians, for instance, he says, your citizenship is in heaven. So God's people are our people, which means that many of the people that we spend time with are not our people. So that also means you're probably not going to fit in. You're going to feel like you don't belong if you're living Christianly. So this place isn't our home. Those people aren't our people because we're foreigners here. And I think that's a big thing to hear. We're aliens in this world. We're different. So if you look at verse 14 and 15, this is what the difference is all about. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Don't copy the way the world lives. Live differently. God's purpose in redeeming us is so that we can be with him and become like him and he's holy. So we're to be separate, set aside from the world. And it's helpful to understand the basis on which God's called us to be holy. But I'll be honest and say that to be told to live differently, to be told that I'm an alien and that I'm going to stand out and not fit in is a hard thing to hear and it's a hard thing to do and I want to suggest that it's a hard thing to hear and to do for all of us because chances are we've spent a large part of our lives trying to do the exact opposite. From an early age, sometimes subtly or subconsciously, we're trying to figure out how to fit in and not stand out. And we all want to be unique and special, but not that unique and special that we stand out all the time. We want to fit in. We want to find our people. We want to have friends. And I'd say that the only way that we all survived high school and maybe even in some workplaces is to work out how to fit in or at least fly below the radar. So we've developed skills that help us fit in and then we go and open our Bibles and and God tells us, No, I want you to stand out. I've called you out so that you will live differently. This is what new life is. I think this is hard to hear and hard to do, but Peter tells us it's absolutely worth it. And luckily, Peter's going to help us to get it and to help us to do it. So again, back at verse 13, Peter tells us to get serious, to be sober-minded, He goes on a few times to say, be sober through this letter, be serious. But what's translated there in the NIV is be alert or with alert minds, minds that are alert, is in fact a much more fun phrase in the Greek. He actually says, gird up the loins of your mind. And to gird up your loins meant to pick up your tunic and tuck it into your undies so that you're ready to run, ready to run into battle, ready to do some hard work. Uh, We don't gird up our loins very often anymore, but we do sometimes talk about rolling up our sleeves when there's hard work to do. 
And it's the same idea. But he says, gird up the loins of your mind and get serious and be sober. And being sober is something that a lot of people aren't at this time of the year. But being sober-minded is a theme that runs through the whole letter. Be serious. And what does it mean? Well, it means to think clearly, see clearly and act appropriately. So by contrast, what's the opposite of being sober? Well, it's to be drunk, to be intoxicated. And what is that like? When a person's drunk, their senses are impaired, their vision can be blurry, their thinking is foggy and delayed, and so is their reaction time. Their reactions are off. They misjudge reality. They can't properly see the reality in front of them, so they either overreact or underreact. They can't see what's coming for them. And so we have laws that say you can't operate machinery or drive vehicles when you're intoxicated because you aren't able to see the reality correctly and you won't act appropriately, you'll continue to make wrong judgments. Now this is what Peter is talking about. The world around us can be intoxicating. It will impair our vision, cloud our thinking and cause us to make poor judgments and then act inappropriately. Now Peter's saying more than don't get drunk, although he probably is including that too. He's saying, be serious, roll up your sleeves, be alert and aware of what's around you. Live in a way that you see the reality of what is around you, think clearly about it and you'll react well and act appropriately. Because Peter wants us to know that for Christians there are two big things coming for us and that we should prepare ourselves so that we can respond well. The two things that are coming for us are the grace of Jesus and the judgment of the Father. So let's look at these two things and see what we can see if we've got sober minds. In verse 13, Therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. If you're alert and aware, you'll see that Jesus is coming. And for the Christian... He comes with incredible grace. Your final salvation is coming and if you're alert and aware, you'll see it coming and set your hope on it. That will become your focus. You'll long for it, you'll spend your time daydreaming about it or as verse 6 puts it, you'll greatly rejoice in it because it's coming. It's what you think about. So let's think about it. What it means is that one day soon, we get to go home, our real home. There's an inheritance there that will never perish, spoil or fade. It's the treasures of God and in the end it's the treasure of being able to be in the presence of God himself and be face to face with Jesus, our Lord, our King, our Saviour and our brother. And as we find ourselves in our inheritance, we're home. Sin is gone, death is gone, pain is gone, suffering is gone and tears are gone. Joy explodes and comfort is unending. We have the connection with others and with God that we've always longed for. The security that we've always wanted is there and guaranteed and our significance is fully realised. 
This is the grace that's coming for us. And we should be able to see it if we're sober-minded. Can we be focused on this grace that's coming with Jesus, the salvation that we know is on the way? Now, if you're anything like me, you can admit that it's hard to stay focused on the grace of Jesus, which is a bit silly, really. If what I've just described about the grace of Jesus is true, and it is true, how come we're not completely consumed by the grace that's coming? I think sometimes we find it hard to stay focused on the grace that we know is coming and we kind of forget and get on with other things in life. But why is it hard for us to stay focused on the grace that we know is coming? Well, can I suggest that we get drunk? We roll back our sleeves, we get intoxicated with the world. We get dizzy with desire for the things in the here and now and they cloud our vision so we lose sight of the reality of the world and the grace that we know is on the way. And I think it happens easily. We grow a desire for money because with money comes the promise of power or security and the opportunity to just do the things that we want to do. Or we grow a desire for success, whatever we think that looks like, in a career, at home with our family, among our peers. We want to be seen as someone doing a good job with our life that we're really winning, we're living our best life. Or we might just have a desire just to really enjoy life and we could try and do that through sport or hobbies or travel or holidays or good food or experiences. And none of those things that I've mentioned are bad things in themselves and actually most of them are pretty good things. But what can happen as we get tipsy with desire for the whole range of those things is that they numb us spiritually. They cloud our vision and our thinking and we can't see reality. And by, rea- by reality, I mean the coming of our God and the grace he's bringing. And for which people think we're crazy for believing, but that is reality. So how often do we get intoxicated with the world? tipsy with the here and now and not living with clear eyes and minds on the reality of the things of God and the grace God brings to us in Jesus. We can easily crowd it out. So do we need to sober up a bit? Because if we're sober, Peter tells us that it's not just grace that's coming. We'll also see the judgment of the Father. If you look ahead to verse 17... Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time in reverent fear. So God's not just a father who gives us good things. He's also a judge who judges what we do impartially. He's the judge who watches everything and nothing escapes his sight. So we should live in reverent fear, showing appropriate respect for him. Because in the end, the only thing that will matter is what God thinks of you and your life. It's easy to get caught up in what everyone else thinks of us, to fit in. But in the end, it will be clear that the only thing that matters is what God thinks of us. And that's what it means to live in reverent fear, to understand that God, our Father, is also our judge. So if we're serious, 
spiritually sober, we'll be celebrating and focusing on the grace of God and living very concerned and carefully, understanding that our God is judge and he's holy. So how do we do this? How do we sober up? How do we gird up the loins of our minds? Now, there's all sorts of myths and bad advice for someone who's physically drunk to sober up. But how do we spiritually sober up? And I don't think any of these will be a surprise to you. If we jump all the way ahead to chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you grow up into your salvation. Peter's saying that you'll be clear-minded when you grow up and stay clear on the things of God. And what will cause you to stay sober-minded and grow up in your salvation? Well, he calls it pure spiritual milk. And what does that mean? Well, it means the Word of God. We need to read it, to think about it, and to talk about it. We need to go deeper with Jesus. When you read God's Word, it's like you're drinking it in. It gives you spiritual nourishment. And if you look carefully there, Peter doesn't say, have a little bit every now and then, if you think of it. He says we should crave it like a newborn craves milk. If you've ever met a newborn, how do they crave milk? Do they let you know that they're ready? And at that time, will anything else do? Somehow babies know that it's not optional. They know that they need it for survival. And our attitude to God's word should be the same. How easily do we go for a day without pure spiritual milk? How easily do we go for a week thinking, I'll get to it now and then? Because it's in the optional category. We know it's beneficial, but we're busy. Peter says we're to crave this. We're to understand that this is essential to our lives. So how do we develop a craving? I think it's like an acquired taste. The way you learn to crave it is to continually sample it, keep trying it, and invest in in acquiring a taste for it. Because if it remains optional, we won't grow up in our salvation, which is what God wants us to do. So we need to develop a taste, crave it daily, grow up in our salvation. So the Word of God, I hope that's not a surprise. Go deeper with Jesus. And there's two more. The next one's prayer. Now, if you want to flick over to chapter 4, verse 7 in Peter's letter, in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. So Peter's saying, if you're sober, you will pray. And I also want to suggest that when you pray, it also sobers you up. So it's circular. Praying will get you sober. So pray. Make space to pray. Put the time aside. Don't fit it in. And keep praying because if you keep praying, you'll probably find yourself thanking because you start to appreciate the things that God has already given you. And you start to dwell on and think about your own salvation and you start to ask for things that are on God's heart 
and in line with his desires and purposes for the world and for you. So make space to pray and that will sober you up. And you'll be thinking about the world clearly and seeing clearly. So uh, make space to pray and go deeper with Jesus reading his word. And the third thing, be God's people and spend time with each other. Spend time with people like you. Go deeper with others. And don't think for a minute that the people that we spend time with won't impact and shape the way we think, feel and act. We can't help but be influenced by the people we spend time with. They shape our thinking. So choose to spend time with sober people. Invest heavily in God's people. Go deeper with others. Be shaped by how they are excited by God's grace in Jesus. Back in chapter 1, in verse 22, Peter says, Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. That's a pretty strong call to invest in each other's lives. To love one another deeply from the heart. And if we do this, we'll find ourselves growing in our desire to love people and love the world. But we start with the deep love for God's people. This is how we're to invest in each other. And as we do that with other sober-minded people, our thinking will be shaped and we'll see more clearly the reality of the world we live in. So Peter tells us we need to be alert. We need to get sober and stay sober. So go deeper with Jesus through God's word. Make space to talk to God through prayer and go deeper with others through meeting with God's people. And as we get serious and stay sober, know this, as you see reality and live according to that reality, anticipating what's coming, you're going to feel like an alien because you're living in a world that can't see reality because it's drunk. Drunk with desire for everything else and that fogs their vision. So as you pursue this life of spiritual sobriety, know that you'll feel like a foreigner because you are a foreigner. God's changed you and made you his. So we're to be holy as he is holy. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this call from 1 Peter to sober up. Lord, we confess that we easily get intoxicated with this world, sometimes even drunk with desire for the things in this world. Lord, we want to hear the rebuke and snap ourselves out of our intoxication and be sober and see reality. We want to celebrate your incredible grace that's coming for us in Jesus and fix our eyes on that. And we want to live carefully in the light of the fact that you judge. Help us to make space for you, to go deeper with Jesus and to go deeper with each other. We want you to do that work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would get the glory. Amen.